This episode is brought to you by the Device and Virtue podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Adam. On Device and Virtue, Chris and I argue about the wrongs and rights Christians face with technology in everyday life. From smartphones to evangelism chatbots. To that selfie stick Adam shouldn't have bought. It's nice. Subscribe at deviceandvirtue.com. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they deliver. Today's message comes to us from John G. Payton, and it's not so much a sermon as it is a, a, an excerpt from an autobiography he wrote. He is a missionary. I don't know if you remember our episode on David Livingsting, where we listened to an expert of a speech he gave at a rally. This is something similar, where we're listening to a portion of his autobiography where he describes his calling to mission field and why that was important to him. Yeah, normally we do, and we have always stuck with sermons. We're really trying to stick as close to we can with them, and we want to, you know, promise to you, if this is your first episode, you don't normally listen, this is not how they normally go. So we do highly recommend you check out some of our other ones. That David Livingston episode would be a great episode to check out after this one. But John G. Payton's story is so interesting. He was such a fascinating guy, and this excerpt that we got a hold of, of how he felt the call to missions to go and preach the gospel. He was this iconic, huge missionary in the 1800s who goes to the New Hebrides people, this area just north of Australia, pretty much all islands, East Pacific kind of style. And and the people there are cannibals. They, you know, they attack and they and they literally eat people that have come to be missionaries in the past. And yet he gets in there and he tells these stories. It's absolutely fascinating. So even though it's a little bit outside of the way Revive Thoughts normally does things, we, we love missionary stories. We love when we can get them on our show. And this was just one we didn't want to pass up. But to help us tell the story, we actually have the author of a, a biography on John G. Payton that... Uh, Banner of Truth has hooked us up and contacted us with, and we're, we're really thankful to Banner of Truth. We're really thankful to Paul for coming on, and we want you to be able to hear from an expert on John G. Payton who can really give you the best information. So we're going to have a little interview with him, and then you're going to listen to that story of John G. Payton being called to the mission field, and we think you will be really, honestly, deeply encouraged by all of it. So we are very excited to have Paul Schleyline on the show with us today, and he's going to tell us about this speaker that we're going to listen to in a little bit, John G. Payton. Uh, but first, can you tell the audience about yourself, who you are, uh, Paul, where, where you're at, things like that? Well, my name is Paul Schleyline, and I am married with seven children, and we live in a little Tsonga-speaking village in South Africa, Limpopo, South Africa. I've been here since 2006. We live near the border of Zimbabwe and Mozambique, and we have given our lives to planting churches and evangelizing among the Tsonga-speaking people. So we love the gospel of Jesus Christ. We love his word, and we love to proclaim it to those who need it most. That's awesome, and I, I, so I had to ask you. You're, you're in South Africa. You're doing this in very important missionary work. Uh, you're letting other people know about the gospel and, and all this stuff. But what made you want to write a book 
on John G. Payton, right? Like if I'm out there and doing all that stuff, the, I'm not sure the first thing on my mind would be, I need to write a book about this missionary people don't know all that much about. What what inspired that for you? I've always been greatly influenced by missionary biographies. My mother told me that when I was four years old, when she asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I said I wanted to be a missionary in the woods. So missions has always kind of been on my mind. I grew up in a great home, a great Christian home. Missionary biographies, whether it was Jim Elliott or Hudson Taylor, it was actually Hudson Taylor's two-volume biography that really was influential in calling me to the mission field. I was in college and took a summer trip to Ghana, West Africa, and I read those two volumes about Hudson Taylor on the plane and on the field. When you said I was four years old and wanted to be a missionary, I was like, that sounds like the Hudson Taylor story a little bit, where he was announcing he was going to be a missionary at a very, very young age. Yes, yes. So, um, and and not only Hudson Taylor, but a, a lot of these missionaries really grew up in great Christian homes. Peyton is a perfect example. What drew me to Peyton, and there were many things, but what drew me to Peyton was he grew up in a wonderful, godly Christian home. Uh, his father was the leader. He was the patriarch. His father wanted to go into ministry, and for whatever reason, it didn't turn out. And they committed, his mother and his father committed, that their firstborn child would be a missionary, although they didn't say it specifically to him at the time. And then fast forward later on in Peyton's life, he was volunteering to go to the New Hebrides, these cannibalistic islands. He was not a loser back home who couldn't do anything else. And then he said, well, I guess I'll be a missionary, which is sometimes the mindset in the world today. If you can't do anything else, let's just send him to the other side of the world and mm-hmm. hope he doesn't make a fool of himself. He was, he was a great evangelist. He didn't go to the mission field until his 30s. And he was very successful in Glasgow, Scotland. And they were looking for people to be missionaries. And no one volunteered. They even cast lots to find out who should go. And finally, here comes Peyton, their prized evangelist. And he comes forward and he says, I want to be a missionary to the New Hebrides. And everyone says, whoa, this this can't be right. And they tried to pay him to stay. And they gave all kinds of reasons of why he shouldn't go. He kind of called their bluff. And he went home discouraged. And his mother and his father were really the only ones who supported him at that time. And that's when they told him, your father, he wanted to be a missionary. He ended up being a a manufacturer of socks. They were a very (laughs) poor family. Probably felt like he was a failure. And yet he produced one of the greatest missionaries Mm. ever, his son. And it began in those consistent times of family worship in the home. So that's what really drew me to Peyton. And of course, his autobiography is is a classic that cannot be duplicated. And I'm not trying to duplicate his autobiography. But I did read a number of years ago a biography on Isaac Watts by Douglas Bond. I think it was published Ooh, we've by had Douglas Bernard Bond on our show. Actually, he's he's a fantastic author yeah, well, and was a speaker. Shout for out John Knox. Douglas Bond, right? And and you know they're small they're, the, the kind of surveys. And I remember reading it on 
Isaac Watts, and I thought, I think I could do this on John Payton. Now, John Payton's autobiography, it was published, you know, over 100 years ago, late 1800s, early 1900s, and it's over 500 pages. Again, wow. a, a classic. But how many, how many people in the pew are going to read that? Yeah, how many exactly. pastors are going to read that? So I thought, if I could take this and narrow it down so that I could make it, oh, around 200 pages that someone could read, uh, I think it could be really helpful for the church. So I really tried to be as brief as I could. I wanted to make it practical. I wanted to bring out the best parts of Peyton. If I had a Mount Rushmore for missions, William Carey would definitely be on there. Hudson Taylor mm-hmm. would be on there. My teammate here on the field would be on there, though no one's heard of them. Maybe N.R.M. Judson, but if I could only have four, John Payton would be on there. Wow. Not only because of the, uh, the influence in that great century of missions in the 1800s, but his evangelistic fervor is what really set him apart. He lost his wife early on. He mm. lost his infant baby boy uh, early on. He was on a field for four years, basically running for his life every day. Wow. Uh, the autobiography really reads like a thriller. It is adventurous. And he was a man who loved the gospel of Jesus Christ. He believed in the sovereignty of God and salvation, which did not discourage evangelism, actually fueled his evangelism. And really is a great missionary that needs to be heard and needs to be read again. I have a little bit of a follow-up question. I will say, too, I love the Mount Rushmore thing. I think there, if I was making a Mount Rushmore missionaries, I would have a, a face for the not known, the not famous missionaries, because there are so many of them that we don't know their stories, but their sacrifices are known in heaven, and we will hear their stories someday, and we'll be like, you, did, you went through what? Wow. Um, right. But a little follow-up on this. You talked about his life story, how he got out there and, and all the different things, but why the, maybe give a little bit, just a, just a minute or two. So why the, is it the new, I, I was new reading Hebrides. it as Hebride, but clearly you're saying Hebrides. So <laughs> right. Hebride. The new Hebride people. Which how, actually, you know, the Hebrides islands were actually to the North of Scotland. So oh. that's, so that, that's a connection there, but anyway, yeah, new Hebrides. Okay. The new Hebrides people. And what, what was their, what was their situation like before he got there and maybe a quick, like what happened after? Yes. A great question. So the reason why there was so much terror uh, around the church that heard Peyton wanting to go to the new Hebrides was because two decades earlier, one of the great missionaries, John Williams, had been killed on the New Hebrides on an island called Aromanga. He, he was a household name. He had met royalty in England. He was uh, a great missionary to Polynesia. He had written books. And then he goes to Aromanga. They set anchor off the island. He and another man go to shore, and they get on shore, and they're attacked immediately killed, cooked, and eaten mm. while the ship that has anchored is watching this. So they actually had to bring up anchor, leave, go go back 
home to report this. Then later on, they had to somehow retrieve the, the bodies and, and the bones. Well, this, this had happened. This was still fresh in everyone's mind. So now here's Peyton, the great evangelist. And, you know, the famous quote that comes from a Mr. Dixon, whoever he was, he stood up and he said, the cannibals, the cannibals, you'll be eaten by the cannibals. Look, this wasn't a Christian who wanted to bubble wrap every Christian that wanted to do anything for Christ. Mm -hmm. This was something that was horrific in their mind and thinking that it would just be throwing your life away, essentially to do what John Williams had done. Hmm. And Peyton says, I'm going, you know, he had given the famous line that man is immortal until his work on earth is done. The safest place Hmm. in a sense is in the center of God's will. So he gets married to a 19-year-old young lady, and they immediately set off to this island. And they go to Australia and then over to the New Hebrides. And, um, you know, within a few months, his wife dies of malaria. His child dies, and he buries both of them arm in arm in the same grave. He said, I almost went mad beside that lonely grave. If you've never gone through something like me, don't try to understand my sorrows. 99.9% of us today would have quit, but he stayed. He was encouraged to leave, but he said, it's taken me so much to get here. If I leave, I might never come back. So that was actually on the island of Tana. And he was on the island of Tana for four years, again, running for his life. And finally, after four years and many adventures, uh, he, he took uh, a ship back to Australia. He remarried. And then he came back to another island called Aniwa. And that is really when he saw the fruitful years of his ministry. He wanted to go back to Tana. Instead, he went to Aniwa. He was there for 15 years. And he just saw incredible blessings from the Lord. Two sides uh, giving the same message, but different hearts. You know, it reminds me of Acts where, you know, in one section they're cut to the heart and they say, what do we need to be, do to be saved? And then you go to another part and the same message is preached and they took up rocks to kill people. So John Payton really was courageous. He had that kind of uh, spy, uh, steel in his spine he had that kind of fervor. He ha- he had a kind of moxie in, in his e- evangelism that we don't see much today in our generation. And we really need, especially, we need men to read this story. We need to see examples of men who had family worship every day in their home, morning and night. We need to see men who were working from 6 in the morning till 10 at night, as his father did, and he was expected to do that as well. Uh, we need to see a man who do hard things, who do dangerous things, who do risky things for the cause of Jesus Christ. So there really is a, a kind of uh, testosterone running through the book. And at the same time, you see his wife and how he cared for her. And she came out later and wrote kind of the the feminine side of the mission field. His wife, Maggie Payton, who wrote a book still in print, actually, by Banner of Truth called Letters and Sketches. So that kind of gives the more high-definition, uh, color version of the mission field that you don't see as much with Peyton. Interesting. Yeah, 
Uh, so I have a question. So is you know you you're obviously I love listening to people explain uh, these people in the church. It's mesmerizing. Like I, I can just sit back and listen to the feats and the accomplishments that these people have done. Is there something that you think he understood about trusting in God that people today don't quite grasp? Is there something that you feel like he understood with his relationship with God and with his faith and with his belief that many of us don't in today's day and age? Well, I mean, he understood, first of all, the sovereignty of God and salvation, that God knows who he will save. And some people have viewed that as a deterrent missions they've said if god knows all who will be saved which he does and they've been chosen before the foundation of the world well let me just sit back and relax since it's going to happen anyway and that's the opposite of what we find in scripture it's the opposite of what we find in peyton's life it's the opposite of what we find in missions Look, I just finished with a Bible study with some men in my village just before this interview. And a couple of days ago, I was going into other villages nearby with people who struggle to read and don't understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and among a people that I've taken my life to learn that song, the language, so that I can clearly communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. I could not handle the pressure if I knew that people were not converted because I didn't do a good enough job communicating that. I know that God is the one who saves. My responsibility is to give a clear gospel presentation. He's the one who's going to say the Holy Spirit's going to do the work. John Payton understood that, and he wanted to be a part of that plan. It fueled his evangelism. I think he also understood uh, courage and risk. Um, he, he understood that to avoid all risk is to avoid the Christian life. The Christian life is going to have risk in it. We're promised contrary to the prosperity gospel that is rampant in our world today. Even in Peyton's day it was rampant, but especially in our world today that says God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and happy. And we have been promised Acts 14, 22, We've been promised that while we enter the kingdom of God, there will be trials, there will be tribulations, there will be suffering. And he knew that going in. And so that really bolstered him as he was on the mission field. He, he lost much. And really, one of the reasons why Peyton gets all of the publicity, I mean, you made a good point before. You said, let's put a, some kind of unknown face on our missions, Mount Rushmore. That's the way it was. Peyton wrote this book in many ways because there was no one else left alive to write it. Hmm. When he left that island, almost everyone else had died. There was other missionaries who had succumbed either to being murdered by the natives or they had died of disease. So he, he wrote that book. And as I dug deeper, I realized that so many of these missionaries they, they, they wrote their journals, and you read about this missionary and this missionary among, you know, the New Hebrides cannibals, and you've never heard of them, and yet they, they have stories to tell. And so Peyton was very humble. He didn't talk much about his family. He didn't praise himself. It's not easy to write an autobiography. To write an honest autobiography is very difficult because you're going to fall off 
the horse on one side or the other. Either you're going to be too prideful or you're going to be, in a sense, too humble and you're going to leave out important details. I think mm. I think he did a great job. His brother James helped edit the book. Uh, many of his brothers were in the ministry. He just came from a great home. And I would say, even before the church that sent him out, which was a great church, I would really say the the footings, the foundation of Peyton's missions movement over to the islands, it really was not set by the church. I think it was set by his family. He told stories of hearing his father in the afternoon in his own private room praying and asking the Lord to convert the lost around the world. And he never forgot about that. So his father really had a great influence in his movement to the mission field. Do you think about how your iPhone affects your daily life as a Christian? I'm Adam. And I'm Chris. And this episode is brought to you by the Device and Virtue podcast, where we argue about the wrongs and rights of technology and faith in everyday life, from DNA tests to TikTok videos. Give us a listen, and this fall, check out our new online seminary course. It's called Theology of Technology, Church and Culture in the Age of Zoom. Find out more at deviceandvirtue.com. All right. Well, we have one more kind of final set of questions for you here. Uh, what parts of his story would you not want our audience to miss as we're, we're kind of transitioning to listening to the red part of the show? What would you want to make sure the last, you know, make sure you don't miss this part? And do you have any, and kind of with that, any closing thoughts um, before our audience is going to actually listen to a little bit of that missionary story of how he got onto the mission uh, field. That's the part that the speaker is going to read today. And I really enjoyed that story um, and can't wait for everyone to get to hear it. But again, final closing thoughts from you. What are you thinking? Yeah, good question. So a, a few thoughts. Number one, read the autobiography. It's still in print. Again, 500 pages. So if you want all the details, that can't be matched. And then read his wife's letters and sketches. I think ladies in particular would really be helped by that because she talks about whale watching on on the shoreline as the sun is setting. I mean, John's not interested in talking about those things. He's talking <laughs> about running for his life. But those kinds of stories, they were really letters that were written back home. So they would talk about, you know, without email, yeah. without Twitter, they're they're getting a shipment of letters that are 40 pages long and they just devour these letters all you know and we, we talk about binge watching on netflix i mean they would binge read on you know on a, a letter that was 40 pages long from their family so these were just a set of letters that were not meant to be published but they're excellent so that would be one thing if you can't read those two if they're too long then then read the banner of truth volume that i put together which is under 200 pages and then I would say probably the best quotes. Peyton is a wordsmith. He knows how to turn a phrase. When he's running for his life, he gives one story where he's up in a tree and all of the natives are running underneath looking for him and it's late at night and he's praying to the Lord to save him. I mean, those are just great quotes that'll just make you soar and, and want make you want to be a missionary, make you want to be an evangelist, make, mm. make you want to be a Christian. And then also there's some quotes early on in the book 
where there's one particular story that's really moving where he's he's going off to school and he's walking with his father and they're walking in silence together and uh, you know his father's got a long flowing beard and they kind of say goodbye to each other and he runs off in a way that says I can't wait to get away but then he kind of ran over the hill and he looks back and he sees his father kind of looking for him and walking back he said I never forgot that moment and even on the mission field when I wanted to quit and when I wanted to hang it up I remembered the prayers of my father and I remembered the influence of my father the the shadow that fathers show over their children the influence that fathers have over their children is immense even absentee fathers influence their their children negatively or you can influence your your children positively. His father was always before him. He had an immense influence on his life. So I would really try to read those early parts of the story. This is something that you can read as a family. Uh, it's adventurous. You could read it for family worship, family devotions. You could read it as a as a read aloud if you're homeschooling, or just reading it as a as a young man. I think even children could handle. I think children could definitely handle. The book that I wrote, I have children 11 and under, and a number of them have read it. So I think those courageous, adventurous portions uh, will will really make people want to think more clearly about missions. Yeah, and we'll be sure to include a, a link to that in our show notes for this episode as well. Paul, thank you so much for coming on. It's been really, really neat hearing from you and hearing more about the life of John G. Payton. Well, thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate it. As happy as I felt in my work at Divinity Hall, and as successful as things were going, I couldn't shake the continuous sound of the wail of the perishing heathen in the South Seas, and I saw that few were concerned for them. For I knew that many would be ready to take up my work in Calton, and carry it forward perhaps with more efficiency than myself. So without revealing the state of my mind to anyone, this desire to serve consumed my meditation and prayer. And this also led me to work through my medical studies with diligence, But at the close of my third year, an incident occurred, which led me at once to offer myself to the foreign mission field. The Reformed Presbyterian Church of Scotland, in which I had been brought up, had been advertising for another missionary to join Reverend John Inglis in his grand work in the New Hebrides. Dr. Bates, the excellent overseer of the Heathen Missions Committee, was deeply grieved because for two years their appeal had failed. The elders were so concerned that for the claims of the heathen so urgently pressed upon them by the Lord's repeated calls, that they resolved to cast lots. These lots were to discover whether God would select any minister to be relieved from his work and be designated as a missionary to the South Seas. Each elder, as I was informed, agreed to hand in the names of the three best qualified in his eyes for such a work, and he who had the clear majority was to be sent from his congregation and to proceed to the mission field or the first and the second highest if two could be secured. Hearing this debate and feeling an intense interest in such unusual proceedings, I remember the hushed solemnity of the prayer as the names were handed in. I remember the strange silence that held the assembly while the elders retired to examine the papers. And I remember how tears blinded my eyes when they returned to announce that the result was so indecisive that it was clear that the Lord had not in that way provided a missionary. 
The cause was once again solemnly laid before God in prayer, and a cloud of sadness appeared to fall over all the synod. The Lord kept saying within me, Since none better qualified can be found, rise and offer yourself. Almost overpowering was the impulse to answer aloud, Here I am, send me. But I was dreadfully afraid of mistaking my mere human emotions for the will of God. So I resolved to make it a subject of close deliberation and prayer for a few days longer. And I would look at the proposal from every possible aspect. Besides, I was keenly aware of the effect upon the hundreds of young people and others now coming to my classes and meetings. And yet, I felt a growing assurance that this was the call of God to His servant, and that he who was willing to employ me in the work abroad was able to provide for the work I had done at home. The wail and the claims of the heathen were constantly sounding in my ears. I saw them perishing for lack of the knowledge of the true God and His Son Jesus. At the same time, my Green Street Church people had the open Bible and all the means of grace within easy reach, which, if they rejected, they did so willfully and at their own peril. None seemed prepared for the heathen field. Many were capable and ready for the service I was now doing. My medical studies, as well as my literary and divinity training, had qualified me in special ways for the foreign field. And from every aspect that I looked at, God seemed to be calling me to be a missionary to the South Seas. I also had experience in understanding the basics of many trades. It was under the good Dr. Bates of West Campbell Street that I had begun my career in Glasgow, receiving 25 pounds for my work. And oh, how Dr. Bates did rejoice and weep for joy when I offered myself for the New Hebrides mission. I returned to my home with a lighter heart than I had for some time enjoyed, for nothing clears the vision and lifts up the life as a decision to move forward in what you know to be entirely the will of God. I said to my roommate who had been with me all throughout our courses at college, I have been out today signing my banishment, a rather trifling way to talk for such an occasion. I have offered myself as a missionary for the New Hebrides. After a long and silent meditation in which he seemed lost as far as wandering thoughts, his answer was, If they will accept me, I am also resolved to go. I said, Will you write the covenant to that effect or let me do so? He replied, You may. A few minutes later, his letter of offer was in the post office. The next morning, Dr. Bates called upon us early and after a long conversation commended us in our future work to the Lord God in fervent prayer. This fellow student, Mr. Joseph Copeland, had also for some time been a very successful city missionary in the Calton District, all the while attending school with me at the Divinity Hall. The leading of God, where we both resolved at the same time to give ourselves to the foreign mission field, was wholly unexpected by us. We had never once spoken to each other about going abroad, at a meeting of the Foreign Missions Committee held immediately afterward, both of us were formally accepted on condition that we passed successfully the usual examinations required of candidates for the ministry. When it became known that I was preparing to go abroad as a missionary, nearly all were dead set against the idea, except Dr. Bates and my roommate. My dear father and mother, however, when I told them, replied that they had long since given me away to the Lord, and in this matter also would leave me to God's disposal. From other places we were besieged with the strongest opposition on all sides. Even Dr. Symington, one of my professors in divinity, repeatedly urged me to remain at home. He argued that this church was doubtlessly the place that God had given me special qualifications, and for this reason he had so largely blessed my labors, that if I left those now attending my classes and meetings, they might be lost, and many of them would probably fall away, that I was leaving certainty for uncertainty, work in which God had made me gratefully useful, for work in which I might fail to be useful, 
and only to throw away my life amongst cannibals. I replied that my mind was resolved, that though I loved my work and my people, I felt I could leave them to the care of Jesus, who would soon provide for them a better pastor than myself, and that with regard to my life amongst the cannibals, as I had only once to die, I was content to leave the time and place and means in the hands of God. For he had already marvelously preserved me when visiting cholera patients and the fever-stricken poor. So on that score, I had positively no further concern, having left it all absolutely to the Lord, whom I desired to serve and honor, whether in life or by death. The house connected with my church was now offered to me, and any reasonable salary that I cared to ask on the condition that I would remain at home. I cannot honestly say that such offers or opposing influences proved a heavy trial to me. They actually confirmed my belief that the path of duty was to go abroad. Against many who wanted to change my mind, one was a dear old Christian gentleman whose crowning argument always was, The cannibals! You will be eaten by the cannibals! At last I replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own future is to be laid in the grave and then to be eaten by worms. I confess to you, that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And on the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. The old gentleman left the room exclaiming, After that, I have nothing more to say. My dear church people grieved excessively at the thought of my leaving them. They daily pleaded with me to remain. Indeed, the opposition was so strong from nearly all, and many of them warm Christian friends, that I was sorely tempted to question whether I was carrying out the divine will. Was it only some headstrong wish of my own? This also caused me a lot of anxiety and drove me closer to God in prayer. But again, every doubt would vanish when I clearly saw that all at home had free access to the Bible and the means of grace. They had the gospel light shining all around them, while the poor heathen was perishing. They did not even have the chance of knowing all God's love and mercy to men. Conscience said louder and clearer every day, Leave all these things with Jesus your Lord, who said, Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, and lo, I am with you always. These words kept ringing in my ears. These were our marching orders. Some answered me, There are heathen at home. Let us seek and save, first of all, the lost ones perishing at our doors. This I felt to be a convincing argument and an appalling fact. But I unfailingly observed that those who made this retort neglected those home heathen themselves. And so the objection, as far as from them, lost all its power. They would ungrudgingly spend more on a fashionable party at dinner or tea, on concert or a ball or theater, or on some ostentatious display or worldly and self-indulgence. Ten times more, perhaps in a single day, than they would give in a year or half a lifetime for the conversion of the whole heathen world. Either at home or abroad, Objections from such people must always count for nothing among men to whom spiritual things are realities. For these people themselves, I do and always will only pity them. As God's steward, making such a miserable use of time and money entrusted to their care for parties and lavish events. On meeting with so many divisive influences, I again laid the whole matter before my dear parents and their reply encouraged me. Up until now, we feared to give you a bias but now we must tell you why we praise God for the decision for which you have been led. Your father's heart was set upon being a minister, but other claims forced him to give it up. When you were born, we laid you upon the altar, our firstborn, to be consecrated. And if God saw fit as a missionary of the cross, and it has been our constant prayer that you might be prepared, qualified, and led to this very decision. 
And we pray with all of our heart that God may accept your offering, long spare you, and give you many souls from the heathen world for your hire. From that moment, every doubt as to my path forever vanished. I saw the hand of God very visibly, not only preparing me, but now leading me to the foreign mission field. I knew that the sympathy and prayers of my dear parents were warmly with me in all my studies and in all my mission work. But for my education, they could, of course, give me no monetary help. Although, on the contrary, it was my pride and joy to help them being the eldest in a family of eleven. First, I assisted them to purchase the family cow, without whose invaluable aid my ever-memorable mother could have never reared and fed her numerous flock. Then, I paid for them the house rent and the cow's grass on Bank Hill till some of the other children were more able and relieved me by paying them in my stead. And finally, I helped to pay the school fees and provide clothing for the younger ones. In short, I gave, and quite gladly, what I could possibly be saved out of my own city mission salary. Self-educated in this way, and without the help of one shilling from any other source, listeners will easily imagine that I had many difficulties to overcome in my long schooling in arts, divinity, and medicine. But God guided me. He blessed all my little arrangements so that I never incurred one cent of personal debt. There was, however, a heavy burden pressing upon me. It crushed my spirit from the day that I left home. The late owner of the Dalliston estate allowed, as a prize, the renter who had the tidiest house and the most beautiful flower garden to live rent-free. For several years in succession, my old seafaring grandfather won this prize, partly by his own handy skill and partly by his wife's joy in flowers. Unfortunately, no clearance receipt had ever been asked or given for these rents, as the proprietor and his cotters treated each other as friends rather than as men of business. The new heir succeeding him after an unexpected death found himself in need of money. He threatened prosecution for this rent arrangement. The money had to be borrowed. A money-lending lawyer gave it at the rate of a terrible interest only on the condition that my father also become responsible for the interest in principle. This burden hung like a millstone around my grandfather's neck until the day of his death. And then it became suspended around my father's neck alone. The lawyer, on hearing that I gave up my trade and entered upon study, threatened to prosecute my father for the capital unless my name was given along with his for security. Every shilling that I or any of our family could save for ten years went to pay off that interest and gradually reduce the capital. And this burden we managed amongst us to extinguish just on the eve of my departure for the South Seas. Indeed, one of the purest joys connected with that time was that I received my first foreign missionary salary and outfit money in advance, and could send home a sum sufficient to wipe out the last penny of a claim by that moneylender, or by anyone else against my beloved parents. And that joy was purer by the knowledge that my other brothers and sisters were now both willing and able to do more than all that would be in the future be required. For we stuck to each other and to the old folks like burrs, and had everything in common as a family of Christ. For all this I did praise the Lord. It consoled me beyond description, in parting from them, probably forever in this world at least. The directors of the Glasgow City Mission had made every effort to find a suitable successor to me in my Green Street work, but in vain. The superintendent felt moved to appeal to my brother Walter, then in a good business situation in the city, who had been closely associated with me in all of my undertakings, if he would not come to the rescue and devote himself to the mission. My brother resigned a good position and excellent prospects in the business world and set himself to carry forward the Green Street mission. And he did so with abundant energy and became an honored minister of the gospel in the Reformed Presbyterian Church. 
The blessing of Jehovah God be ever upon that place, and upon all who seek there to win their fellows to the love and service of Jesus Christ. When I left Glasgow, many of the students of my classes would, if it had been possible, gone with me to live and die among the heathen. Though chiefly hard-working girls and lads in trades and mills, their deep interest led them to unite their pennies and to buy cloth and wool. They themselves shaped and sewed into dresses for the women and kilts and pants for the men on the New Hebrides. This continued to be repeated year by year long after I had left them. And to this day, no box from Glasgow goes to the New Hebrides mission, which does not contain article after article from one of the old Green Street hands. I certainly do anticipate that when they and I meet in glory, those days in which we learned of the joy of Christian service in the Green Street mission halls will form a welcome theme of holy and happy conversations. That able and devoted minister of the gospel, Dr. Bates, had taken the deepest and most fatherly interest in all of our preparations. On the morning of our final examinations, he was confined to bed with sickness, but he could not be content without sending his daughter to wait in a room near the presbytery house to learn the results. When she heard, she hurried home and informed him that we had both passed successfully, and that the day of our ordination as missionaries to the New Hebrides had been appointed. The apostolic old man praised God for the glad tidings. He said his work was now done, and that he could depart in peace, having seen two devoted men set out to preach the gospel to these dark and bloody islands in answer to his prayers and tears for many days. Afterwards, he rapidly sank in health and soon fell asleep in Jesus. He was, from the first time I met him, a very precious friend to me and one of the ablest ministers our church ever had. By far, the warmest advocate of foreign missions and altogether a most perfect, pure-souled and noble specimen of an ambassador for Christ who always beseeched men to be reconciled to God. One portion of the story, both you heard it from the author and you heard it while listening to it, is we once again have parents praying for their children to be sent to the mission field, be sent and used by God. If you've listened to Revive Thoughts for a while now, you see that come up over and over again from Hudson Taylor to A.B. Simpson, especially this era of the early mid 1800s. We just see people constantly being sent to the mission field and being prayed for from their very early days by their parents. And I just want to encourage all of us who are parents and encourage those of you who maybe aren't parents yet to just be thinking and praying, would I be willing to send my children to the mission field? Would I actually want God to send my child out like that? And if you're not a parent yet, would I be willing to give up the things most important to me to make sure that the name of God and the name of Jesus Christ is known in the world. This is not me trying to say all of you need to become missionaries per se. I'm just saying, are we even open to that opportunity? Could we hear God's voice in that if he was calling us to do that or if he was calling our children to be a part of that? I just, I don't know about you guys, but I want to have that kind of faith where I am sending and willing to let go of everything. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Chris Estep. Chris is the teaching pastor at Barberville Baptist Church in Waynesville, North Carolina. He is committed to expository preaching 
local church ministry and evangelism. As a voice actor, he has a passion to find ways to collaborate with other churches, ministries, and individuals to help spread the gospel. He and his wife, Becky, have three children. If you enjoy the show, if you're listening every week and you're saying, hey, I, I like what these guys are doing, consider supporting us on Patreon. You can find the link in the description. There are benefits at as little as $6 a month, but you can sign up for any amount, and it's a great way to show your appreciation for the show and to allow us to keep making it. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. This episode is brought to you by the Device and Virtue podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Adam. On Device and Virtue, Chris and I argue about the wrongs and rights Christians face with technology in everyday life. From smartphones to evangelism chatbots. To that selfie stick Adam shouldn't have bought. It's nice. Subscribe at deviceandvirtue.com.